Ask not what your country can do for you. There's a last time I've got to be in the lead. The Giants won the toss. Peter, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning in to episode 36 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. While I am very familiar with some of this artist's music, I was completely unfamiliar with the music on this record. The tunes are played with a really interesting juxtaposition between written music and improvisation using the musical theme of the first song of the album. So get ready to hear the same tune over and over again without realizing it on volume 36, Brubeck's Riddle.
Hey Ho, Anybody Home? Composed by William Smith as are all of the tunes on this album. The quartet is composed of the composer Bill Smith on clarinet. He composed as William but played as Bill. And by the way, he replaced regular Brubeck quartet saxophonist Paul Desmond for this recording. Gene Wright on bass, Joe Morello on drums, and of course, Dave Brubeck on piano. All right, why this album? Well, I've liked what I heard from Dave Brubeck since I first heard his song Take Five. I listened to more of his music over the years, but I had not come across this album before. It's one of the ones I didn't know my dad had. One of the elements of music I like is when a good artist can take an already established tune, tear it apart, change the tempo, the rhythm, and the phrasing, put it back together, and all of a sudden, you have a new tune. But you don't. This album is a supreme example, maybe even taking it farther than I thought possible with that technique. Bill Smith, in some of the liner notes, explains what he did. About the riddle, he says, My main interest in this album was to make three quarters of an hour of well-integrated jazz, unified by relating each tune to the English folk song, Hey Ho, Anybody Home. In some of the tunes, the relationship is quite apparent, as in Hey Ho, Anybody Home, or Blue Ground, it's Swingin' Round, where it is used in the bass or where it is treated as a round. The relationship to the original in the others is more subtle, like a cousin whose only family resemblance is the eyes or a dimple or some other detail. The twig is an outgrowth of the last two measures of the original. Offshoot uses the tune in a major, considerably altered and expanded. Quiet Mood takes the second two-measure segment of the original and uses it as a point of departure. The riddle contains the original melody shape, but it's played in a shorter note values. While in Yet We Shall Be Merry, the main tones of the original are lengthened and combined with a new thematic idea. Of course, we won't hear all of those songs on this episode, but it gives you an idea of the musical experimentation on this album. And the quartet works so well together with this. All right, let's hear that two-measure outgrowth.
The Twig. All right, let's learn about the album I chose for this episode. The Dave Brubeck Quartet, The Riddle, on Columbia Label, number CL1454. It's a vinyl LP mono album format. It was released in 1959, although for some reason Discogs had it uh, released in 1960. Now I'm going to read the first couple paragraphs of the liner notes that were written by Dave Brubeck. To me, Hey Ho, Anybody Home is more than the folk music this album uses as its basic theme, but the tune itself is evocative of friend Bill, poking his head into my living room, singing out, Hey, anybody home? And you know exactly who it is. Who else greets you in such a way? Even though you haven't seen him for two years since he left for Paris or Rome. He is a friend who stays close even after years of separation. In the summer of 1959, our paths crossed again in Lenox, Massachusetts. This time it was I who did the hey-hoing because I had heard that Bill was living in the woods somewhere near Tanglewood. One evening we were engulfed in a sudden summer deluge and I thought of the still unlocated Bill camping somewhere out in the woods and how he might be in need of warm food, fire, and friends. I drove down to the lake campground someone had pointed out to me as a lakeshore site reserved for Tanglewood personnel. I drove the car down to the end of the dirt road and honked my horn hollering, Bill Smith, as loudly as I could. And suddenly, floundering out of the wet shrubbery, emerged a laughing Bill yelling, It's me! It's me! I'm here! Don't go away! One glance and I could see that this boy needed dry clothes and a hot meal. So we took him back with us to Music Inn, where my family and I had made our summer headquarters. That same night, we began rehearsing this album. I was intrigued with the idea Bill presented to me. A jazz LP, which was basically variations on a single theme, but so skillfully devised that the listener is scarcely aware of the direct relationship. The idea of unity in an LP should intrigue jazz men, and Bill has given us one solution to the problem by relating all the themes. This is the first riddle of the album, to discover the thematic relationship of each of the tunes. The second riddle is to detect which parts of the music are written and which are improvised. Almost everyone who has heard this album, including Joe and Gene, our own rhythm section, has had difficulty separating the composed from the improvised sections. I take this as a real compliment because good jazz composition sounds as though it were really improvised, and good improvisation should sound as though it was as well thought out as a composition. I think the integration of the composed and the improvised parts has been very successful. Although Bill and I do not work together regularly, and in fact had not played together for years, a musical rapport from previous years still existed. What an interesting story. All right, well, let's check out the Discogs value of this. Uh, It comes in the lowest value at $2.50, highest at $14.12, and the median value at $6.50. Amazon had one listed at $15, and eBay came in high at $28. Now, my dad's album is extremely hissy, so that's poor condition. The album cover is in fair condition as there is somewhere along the edges, although no slits that he had to cover up with that black tape. So I will value my dad's record at a dollar. Well, we already heard the twig. What other kind of plant part can we find?
and there is Offshoot. All right, let's learn about this episode's artist and band leader, Dave Brubeck. He was born on December 6th, 1920, died on December 5th, 2012. Yes, one day short of his 92nd birthday. Dave Brubeck, designated a living legend by the Library of Congress, was one of the most active and popular musicians in both the jazz and classical worlds. With a career that spanned over six decades, his experiments in odd time signatures, improvised counterpoint, polyrhythm, and polytonality remain hallmarks of innovation. Born into a musical family in Concord, California, his two older brothers were also professional musicians. He began piano lessons with his mother at age four. He was 12 when his father moved the family to a cattle ranch in the foothills of the Sierras. Dave's life changed dramatically. Piano lessons ended and cowboy life began. He worked with his father on the 45,000-acre cattle ranch. When he was 14, he started playing in local dance bands on weekends. When he enrolled at the College of the Pacific in Stockton, California, his intention was to study veterinary medicine and return to the ranch. While working his way through school as a pianist in local nightclubs, the lore of jazz became irresistible and he changed his major to music. Graduating in 1942, he enlisted in the Army and shortly thereafter married Iola Whitlock, a fellow student at Pacific. While serving in Patton's Army in Europe, he led a racially integrated band. After his discharge from military service in 1946, he enrolled at Mills College in Oakland to study composition with French composer Darius Milhaud. Milhaud encouraged him to pursue a career in jazz and to incorporate jazz elements into his compositions. This cross-genre experimentation with like-minded Milhaud students led to the formation of the Dave Brubeck Octet in 1947. In 1949, Brubeck with Cal Tahater and Ron Crotty, fellow Octet members, cut their first award-winning Dave Brubeck trio recordings. After suffering a near-fatal diving accident in 1951, Dave formed the Dave Brubeck Quartet with alto saxophonist Paul Desmond, who was also a member of the octet. The legendary Brubeck-Desmond collaboration lasted 17 years and beyond. The Dave Brubeck Quartet's recordings and concert appearances on college campuses in the 50s and early 60s introduced jazz to thousands of young people. The quartet's audiences were not limited to students, however. The group played in jazz clubs in every major city and toured in package shows with such artists as Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Stan Getz. The Dave Brubeck Quartet repeatedly won top honors in trade magazines and critics and readers' polls. In 1954, Dave Brubeck's portrait appeared on the cover of Time magazine with a story about the jazz renaissance and Brubeck's phenomenal ascendancy. In 1958, the quartet made their first of many international tours. The U.S. State Department sponsored the quartet's performances in Poland, India, Turkey, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, and Iraq. Exposure to many different cultures was reflected in the group's repertoire that sometimes incorporated exotic elements. The 1959 recording, Time Out, experimented in time signatures beyond the usual Jazz 4-4. To everyone's surprise, Time Out became the first jazz album to sell over a million copies, and Blue Rondo a la Turk and Take 5, now in the Grammy Hall of Fame, began to appear on jukeboxes throughout the world. 
And I want to thank DaveBrubeck.com for the information there. Now, his professional life of more than 50 years would take up way more time than we have here for this show. And we'll explore one more aspect of his life later in this episode. But if you want to learn more, there is plenty online to get you started. And now, everybody gets a solo. Thank you. 
swinging round is what you heard. Very much in round form, too. Time now for this episode's interesting side note. One of the things I did know about Dave Brubeck was his fight to keep his band integrated. Despite his talents, it was at times tempting to view his success through a racial lens. Brubeck was white, most of his peers were black. Black musicians, to say nothing of black patrons, were consistently spurned by the media, concert venues, and the recording industry, often living from gig to gig, while their white colleagues enjoyed commercial acceptance. But Brubeck was as aware as anyone of the advantages afforded to a white musician. And like Benny Goodman before him, another white musician at the helm of an integrated band, he used them to fight for civil rights. He led his group through the South in the tumultuous years between the Montgomery bus boycott and the Freedom Riders, refusing to compromise the group's identity for the prejudice of Jim Crow. It was a theme of his career. When he served in the U.S. Army during World War II, his Wolfpack Band was the only integrated jazz group in the armed forces. Like Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington, Brubeck was sent around the world on the State Department jazz tours, whose purpose was in part to counter the idea, widespread in the Third World and happily reinforced by the USSR, that the United States was a land of institutionalized racial prejudice. Like Diz and Duke, he agreed to do so for the love of jazz, but the irony did not escape him as black musicians as black musicians were sent to spread American racial goodwill abroad. Federal troops were necessary to desegregate Little Rock High. He and his wife Iola channeled those contradictions in their musical The Real Ambassadors, whose only performance at Monterey in 1962 featured Louis Armstrong, but was sadly not filmed. In the late 50s, writing the success of Take 5, the Dave Brubeck Quartet was, alongside the modern jazz quartet, the most famous jazz group in the country. It was also thanks to the introduction of bassist Gene Wright, who is black, easily the best-known integrated act. Yet despite their fame, the group was turned away from hotels even outside the South in Minneapolis, Salt Lake City, and elsewhere. But the worst trouble for the integrated band was in the segregated South. Even at university gigs, they required a police escort. A bomb had been thrown at a Louis Armstrong concert in Knoxville in 1957. That's a bomb, Armstrong quipped. In 1958, Brubeck's manager began to receive letters from Southern universities insisting that the quartet drop right in order to perform. We have no integration down here, the president of LSU told the San Francisco Chronicle. It wasn't easy. Brubeck said in 2007, recalling the sense of danger of being sought out for music, but rejected as people, and we went through many things. Brubeck refused to compromise. He canceled gigs at Georgia Tech, Memphis State, and elsewhere. He took a similar stand on the Bell Telephone Hour, a musical TV program when the producers made a similar ultimatum. I told them that we weren't going to change, Brubeck recalled, and they said, well, then we can't have you. And I said, all right, I'm not going to do your television show. Later, he refused $17,000 to play in South Africa under apartheid. Jazz stands for freedom, Brubeck said. For him, it also stood for loyalty and principle. In 1960, after colleges demanded again that Brubeck substitute a white basis for right, Brubeck canceled 23 of 25 dates on a tour of Southern universities, a decision that cost the group an estimated $40,000. The average annual U.S. income at the time was around $5,000. Another time, also in the South, before a gym of college students whose enthusiasm was approaching a riot, the governor and the college president came to a last-minute agreement to allow the band to play. 
Quote, now you can go on with the understanding that you'll keep Eugene right in the background where he can't be seen too well, unquote, the governor said to Brubeck, making sure the bassist Mike was off. But Brubeck had other ideas. I told Eugene, he called in conversation with Hendrick Smith, you got to come in front of the band to play your solo, and the crowd went crazy. Nobody was against my black bass player, Brubeck said. They cheered him like he was the greatest thing that ever happened for the students. We integrated the school that night. A few years later, Brubeck told Smith the band returned to play those same gigs with no trouble. Now, that appeared on Bloomberg.com and was written by Henry Graybar and published on December 5th, 2012. So thank you very much for that nice, concise information there. I know it's a little longer than my usual side notes, but I thought it was important information and history to know. And now, on to the title track of the record...
title track and basically the concept of the album, according to Dave Brubeck, and The Riddle. Well, I hope you enjoyed this album as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Dave Brubeck helped build the bridge between jazz and classical music. It was always the constantly changing time signatures that got me to really listen to his music. And this album certainly had its share of those. Plus, the uniqueness that all the tunes were based off the first tune, which was based off an old folk tune. That's something this jazz-loving, improvisational music geek loves. And this is an album I will definitely keep handy to play over and over. And now, last but not least, let's drink and be merry.
yet we shall be merry. And there you have selections from a great musician and the bandmates who aren't so shabby themselves. So thanks for tuning into Volume 36, Brubeck's Riddle, however you did. If you want more information about this podcast, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 37, Hollywood in Rhythm. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) ¶¶